it's a funny thing to say, but I sort of felt like I wasn't, I guess because I was, you know, a shy teenager, not uncommon. I sort of felt like I couldn't articulate myself as much as I wanted to with words, sort of was held back a bit withdrawn. And so this visual communication design was a way to, in my own way, kind of very clearly and articulately on my own terms, communicate things. What if there was an RPG that married Squid Game and The Truman Show? I don't know about you, but you could sign me up for that. And that is Deathmatch Island. From Tim, I learned how the Paragon system inspired him to create two new games. Here's a question for you. Can you make an RPG based on a Wes Anderson movie? Maybe yes, if you see it as another form of mythology. Listen to discover how he handles cooperative rivalries in his games. Now, I loved hearing about all the mechanics and bookkeeping he threw out of Deathmatch Island through playtesting. And as of the publishing of this episode, Deathmatch Island is crowdfunding on BackerKit. The campaign ends on November 15th. I backed at the survival kit level, and you should check it out and see all the goodies that are coming my way. Oh, and make sure you stick around to the end because we talk about Blades in 68, and it's going to blow your mind. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Tim. This is Barney from Parable Games. When I'm not making terrifying role-playing games, I'm listening to Tabletop Talk. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today I'm talking with Tim Today of Old Dog Games. He's the creator of Deathmatch Island, Odyssey Aquatica, and the best-selling detailed street maps for Blades in the Dark. He's also a renowned illustrator of A Thousand Years of Vampire, which recounts his play of the solo RPG, Thousand-Year-Old Vampire. And then something that has come up, his, where his name first came up, is Through Bronze Murder, a famous tale of Dwarf Fortress. So, Tim, this is long overdue. We've talked about you a million times on this show. Welcome to the third floor. Uh, thank you, Craig. It's an honor. And I got to I gotta be honest with you, Tim. I, it took me a while to connect the dots that you're all the same person, right? So, <laughs> sure. I would... Like I'd be interviewing a creator and they're like, have you ever like read the the recount of a thousand year vampire? I'm like, no, send me a link. And I read and go, shit, that's really good. And then I go and hear about bronze murder. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, I've owned your freaking maps for I don't even know how long. Oh, wow. Yep. <laughs> and, and then to start seeing Sean Nittner talking about Deathmatch Island, I'm like, mm. Jesus, what a great use of the, you know, the Agon engine. And then I figure out, oh, this is all the same person. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, story of my life. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, so, Tim, you know, typically what happens with creators, especially creators of games, uh, which you are, is I start off with their origin story. But I think mm. I want to do yours a little bit different because you almost have kind of two origin stories in my mind. One is as an illustrator and then other is as a gamer and a game mm. creator. So I'm going to phrase it this way and you, you help me out. At one point, you were drawing visual, you know, at practicing visual, whatever. I don't know if it was with crayons or what it was at this stage, but at some point, something said to you, you know, I might be good at this or I enjoy this and I want to keep doing it. Can we go back to when that happened? Hmm. You know, it's funny you asked that because um, I think the two are actually sort of contiguous in a way because I, Interesting. in my teens, I, um, all my creative energy went into, I don't know, role playing and, and Warhammer and, and painting figurines and, and all that kind of thing. Um, and I sort of uh, stepped away from the hobby as I went to university, all these hobbies, uh, and went to design school and got into that side of things. And that's where I discovered a passion for life drawing and illustration and, 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 and that side of things. And 
So I almost feel like I swapped one creative outlet for another. Um, and that uh, was really only in my 30s that I sort of synthesized uh, the two. So, so let's do it this way then, Tim. Let's go back to the first time you, you encountered gaming, right? So the first time you mm. realized that RPGs existed. Can you, you remember that moment? Yes. Um, I mean, I think I was about 15 when I first played, but the, the pump had sort of been primed. I mean, I really think uh, when I was like six or seven, this is a strange one, but Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves came out in 1991. Oh, yeah. Kevin Costner. Yeah, great film. Um, <clears throat> I hadn't really been exposed to sort of like, uh, I don't know, castles and fantasy before that, but I loved that film. You know, I'm like six or seven and my favorite song is Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite action figure is a Morgan Freeman action figure, which is funny to look back on because <laughs> he was in that film. Um, so I was head over heels for that film. I, you know, I like the romance as well. I'm not going to lie. It's, you know, it's a great, yep. it's great. I think it was pretty critically, um, what's the opposite of lauded? It wasn't a hit. Yeah, no. And, and, and it doesn't hold up either, Tim, but that doesn't make it any less of a great film for you, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Alan Rickman, it's got a great scene with a witch doing black magic. And he's awesome. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. yeah. You can't, can't go wrong with Alan Rickman. So anyway, that, that kind of got me into that sort of thing. And there's sort of a straight line from there to Magic the Gathering. So this is the 90s. So it's like second edition and then yeah. Warhammer 40,000 second edition. Um, so I was kind of, you know, adjacent to role playing, but it wasn't until I was about 15. Um, there was actually a friend in high school called Charlotte. She's like the biggest Xena fan I ever met. Shout outs to Charlotte. Um, she was from America and her dad obviously was American and they'd moved over. And um, her dad had offered to basically run a game of D&D for her friends. And so she roped some people together and uh, I was lucky enough to be one of those people. And we played AD&D and it's a hell of an intro to the hobby because you had to learn Seiko, and I remember I rolled 18 strength. You rolled all your stats randomly, and I rolled 18, so yep. I had to roll percentile strength. Whatever. I still don't <laughs> remember how, how percentile strength worked. But, um, and there's just tables. The whole book is tables, and it's in, yeah. yeah. But I loved it. I loved it. It was love at first time. You know, it's one thing, you know, at that age, you know, to say, hey, I really enjoyed that, and, uh, and then you, you know, keep playing and exploring games after that. But it's another mm. thing as an adult to look back on that. So as an adult looking back on you being 15 years old and falling in love, do you have a sense of what it was, why it got us hooked into, hooks into you? Yeah, I really think, I mean, when I look back at my time, uh, it's the sort of earlier nerd hobbies, if you like, like Magic and Warhammer. Mm -hmm. Even when I was playing those games, what I was really looking for was the layer of fiction. So even when I played Magic, I liked, you know, no one was doing this, but I liked to sort of tell the tale when I made my deck of like, okay, I'm, I'm this sort of wizard and I've traveled to these planes and, and found these spells and, and these lands represent my domains and you know, magic isn't really set up to have that kind of narrative layer, but I was looking for it. I really wanted it. Yeah. And like with when I played Warhammer 40,000, I'd always want to know, like, what's the story of your army and why are two armies having this battle and what are the stakes and what's the background? Mm -hmm. And again, most people, they just want to win. <laughs> they don't right. care. They don't really care that, for that narrative layer. Um, and so, I, yeah, I had been looking for this. I didn't, I didn't know it, but I had been looking for this sort of right. this narrative layer and in, in, um, role playing just you know, was a squealy, the bullseye of what I was looking for. So we, we've got the beginning, the first signpost is uh, AD&D 3.5. Mm -hmm. You're 15 years old. Looking back at this journey, what was the next significant game, the next game that you came across that really had an impact on you? Mm, so I can't remember how long that campaign lasted, but I mean, we were absolute shitbirds. Like we were teenagers in I mean, it must have been very annoying for my friend's dad because <laughs> he put all this time into it. 
uh, and we would just ignore all the NPCs and we got this wizard stuff that if you snapped it, it would explode. And we're just always wanting to snap it to explode it because <laughs> why wouldn't you? Um, and I don't think we've completed one single dungeon. We would just get right. you know, characters would die. We'd try again. We, we never planned. We ran into all the traps. It was a disaster. Um, I still loved it. You were playing Dungeon Crawl Classics before the game was made. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's pretty old school though. We actually, um, we did old school mapping. So he would have his map behind oh, the screen yeah. and he would say, okay, you're in this hallway and it's, you know, 10 feet wide by 50 feet long. And one of our players on the grid paper would draw that out oh, painstakingly. Yeah. It's pretty fun. Uh, I've never done that before or since. Um, so anyway, after that, that campaign kind of fell apart, but many of us continued on with other, um, with other games we played like uh, Gamma World and um, what else? All the 90s, 1990s stuff, um, Legend of the Five Rings. and mm. um, But the big one for me, I'd say, would be Deadlands. That was, I think, oh, the first yeah. one I sort of GM'd. I think the GM was called The Marshall in that game. Yep. Um, and I ran that game for a long time for like eight players, like on and off. Um, I was mildly obsessed to the extent that I wanted, to, I wanted to work on Deadlands, but I didn't know how to break into the hobby. So I read an interview with Shane Hensley, and he talked about like what university he went to and what he studied, which was just nothing in particular relevant to role-playing games. But I was like, I should go to that university and study the same things. <laughs> Basically, like talented Mr. Ripley, I wanted to sort of become Shane Hensley, <laughs> just in the hopes of some, some sort of cargo cult thing that I could um, right. <laughs> have the same experience. But yeah, so that, that was the next formative thing. And then after that, um, around early 2000s, I discovered The Forge right mm. at the beginning of The Forge. And um, so, yeah, I kind of fell right into the rabbit hole of indie RPGs and story games and all that stuff. Yeah, I bet. So it, you talked about, you know, when you go to university, you're taking a break. And you mm. talked about at university is really where you found your your love of, of design and illustration. Mm. But you went to university for design. so. I'm, it feels a little chicken and egg for me. Uh, what made you decide that's what I'm going to go to school for? Hmm. I mean, even when I was more sort of, I don't know, role-playing focused, uh, I had been drawing and creating things. I'd never like, I never considered myself the sort of arty kid. I didn't, I did a mm -hmm. bit of art in high school, but, but not much bit of design, but not much. Um, I'm trying to recall. I think I, yeah, you know, honestly, it's funny. I don't recall what sort of planted that seed of design, but I do remember, I think it was actually around that time, there was more and more sort of design software available on computers for free. And so I just started trying it and kind of out of nowhere, I discovered I had this passion for it and I loved it. And I was pretty good at it, which helped. And, um, you know, without any training or background. Uh, and so it, was, it kind of just felt meant to be, and you know, you sort of play around, and, and you have some success, and then you think, so what's the next step? The next step, and that sort of leads you to, well, it led me to formal formal study. Well, yeah, and and you've made a career of it, right? And mm. uh, I'm going to hit you with the same question I did from a gaming perspective. You know, now after you know all these years doing this, when you go back and look at that kid that was in college, wh why did it click? What what was it that you think made you go, holy shit, I love this, and you've now done it for your entire career? I mean, yeah, good question. Um, to some extent, I suppose I'm a visual person, so I, I just, um, you know, one of my design tutors used to say that, you know, you 
this was a funny thing for a teacher to say, but she would kind of say, you either have the eye or you don't. So she was kind yeah. of saying, you can't, you kind of can't teach that, that aspect. Like some students, they could work as hard as they want, but their compositions just don't have the, the you know, they just don't have the eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like not to blow my own horn, but I, I think I do have the eye. And so it's just very satisfying things, right. um, you know, just sort of meant to be. Um, but as well, you know, my degree was actually called visual communication design, which was sort of a high-handed way of saying graphic design. But I do think the aspect of, um, it does come, all come back to communication, right? Like it, right. Um, for me, it's not just about uh, fonts and drawings. It's, um, it's really about communicating ideas as clearly and succinctly as possible. I always felt like um, I wasn't, it's a funny thing to say, but I sort of felt like I wasn't, I guess because I was you know, a shy teenager, not uncommon, I sort of felt like I couldn't articulate myself as much as I wanted to with words, sort of was held back, a bit withdrawn. And so this visual communication design was a way to, in my own way, kind of very clearly and articulately on my own terms, communicate things. That's very, very cool. So guys, the Insider Insight series allows me to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I tried to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. And that's what we're going to do with Tim today. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about Deathmatch Island. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming even if there is a link in the show's description. And there is. We don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So I'll never forget the the tweet, right? I think it was Sean that put the tweet out and uh, I read it and I was like, like, how has this not been created like 10 years ago? Like, this is the most obvious use of the Agon and the Paragon system. So real quick, for those of you that are not familiar with Deathmatch Island, Deathmatch Island is a fast paced game about a deadly game show on a mysterious island chain. The competitors don't know how they got there. They have been selected and recruited forced to risk their lives in a deadly series of games for the vague promise of a big reward of a soul survivor for the soul survivor, which of course echoes to, uh, you know, the most recent um, uh, TV show that got all the acclaim on Netflix. And of course now the name totally escapes me. What was the name of 
Yes, thank you. Yes. Um, but but that's that even Squid Game was not a new premise, right? We'd seen that premise oh, before. I've been working on this before Squid Game came out. So isn't that interesting? It's the perfect oh. touchstone. But um, oh, yeah, isn't that like this? This is just out there. Yeah, I mean this this idea has been around there. So let's rewind a little bit. You have no concept of this. You have no concept of a game in this type of genre with that type of a touchstone. Looking back at it, when did the when do you think that seed first got planted? Mm. Yeah, I sort of feel like, or at least for me, there's two ways to come at a game concept. And one is yeah. you sort of have the fictional idea, like the, the sort of game you want to play. That was Odyssey Aquatica, my, my other Paragon game. Um, I'd always wanted to, this is a strange thing again to say, but I've always wanted to make a life aquatic game <laughs> or a Wes Anderson game. Um, you really like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love it. I saw it at a formative time in my life. Um, I'd even started working on a forged in the dark version, but I couldn't, I couldn't make it click. It didn't seem like there was enough to sort of do, but yeah. Paragon. So I'd had this idea for the kind of game I wanted and Paragon seemed like a great fit. So I made that game. Right. So I had, I had the, the fictional idea first. Deathmatch Island actually came at the other way, which was I encountered the mechanics and the mechanics sparked an idea and then the fiction kind of came after. I mean, you've played Agon recently, recently oh, yeah. right? What was your sort of um, takeaway of the system or the... So I, I went through uh, Agon the same way I went through Blades. Um, so uh, the first time I encountered Blades, I fought the system. The I fought the game the entire time, right? Sure. Uh, just yeah. stubborn and just like an idiot. And every time, like I'm really struggling with this, I'd go back to the book. And John's like, "Stop being an idiot! I've told you how to handle this, right?" And yeah. and, and kind of the same thing happened with Agon. And um, it really delayed because of what I learned about Blades. It delayed me running Agon because I realized that. I couldn't imagine running it in my head, which told me I hadn't figured it out yet. And mm-hmm. I'd learned from blades, like you're going to have to do it the way John's kind of laid it out. Right. Mm-hmm. And this, like, it's pretty, pretty damn specific for a reason. Once I got my head around it, Tim, I put it in front of, uh, we, we streamed it with four, four players that had never played it, a GM that had never run it. Mm. And it was so natural. Yeah, it just made so much sense. And it's, you know, in the same way. And I always talk about this with John's designs. He's got this incredible, like mechanical gear system that just just everything just works together. Yeah. And and the consistency across it. So um, I I was overtaken by it. I really enjoyed it. Now, I will tell you until I heard of your game, until I heard a deathmatch, I did not see Paragon have fitting somewhere else right so i didn't have a situation that obviously you did where i saw the paragon system and go oh there's be a ton of ways to do this mm-hmm. like i saw it as an agon system to be honest with you mm-hmm. then i heard about your game and i was like oh shit of course that's a great idea <laughs> so you you have grabbed onto the paragon system where's the jump where do you then find this theme to bring in with it so i think there are two things one thing that really stood out to me so we had also had a similar experience where me and my regular group, we, we picked up Aegon. Uh, one of my players was really into um, sort of, um, I don't know, ancient Greek stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so he was enthused about it. He'd picked it up. The rest of us gave it a go. And we loved it. We played it for the better part of a year regularly. We finished all the constellation. We ended up traveling to the cosmos. It's awesome. Damn. <laughs> yeah, great fun. Um, uh, but, but two things sort of stood out to me mechanically. I think when you have so much fun with a game like that, you kind of ask yourself, or at least if you're a game designer, you ask yourself, like, what, what is making this so fun? What are the bits that are really speaking to me? And um, so, yeah, two things that directly inspired me. One was the sort of built-in 3X structure. 
which I think so like um if the, the game is built around these islands that come pre-written, which is a sort of genius touch. And they all start with an arrival, then they have a nebulous sort of middle with some trials, and they all end with a battle. So no matter what you do, because it's episodic, every session is going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that works great. And it means you don't have to worry about it. You're going to have some traumatic structure. Uh, and then within that, there's further three X structures where every contest, um, you start with the lowest, you end with the highest. So you always start with the obstacle, then you have some middle stuff going on, and then you have a big climactic finish. Uh, I've seen the game described as just all, all climaxes, which, which yeah. I think is accurate. And then finally, of course, you have the, the three-act structure proper, which is the battle, which is the end of each island. And that starts with, uh, that has three contests linked together. So it also has a beginning, middle, and end. Um, and what really stood out to me is that you could kind of chuck anything at that and you'll get a pretty good story because it's just these series of, um, of three-act structures. And so that's, again, why, that's what inspired Odyssey Aquatica was I was, uh, I thought to myself, you could actually just tell a story about oceanographers on a submarine and it would be exciting because it's in this 3X structure. Well, so let's pause there for just a second, Tim, because, you know, Deathmatch Island, as soon as I heard the concept, if it melts completely with Paragon, I didn't need I didn't need to have you on the show. I, I understood it. Right. <laughs> sure. But but I not, I don't feel that with uh, with Aquatica. Right. So I understand mm. the touch tone. And you just said, you know, oh, it fits perfectly. And and I understand those words, but I don't understand the sentence. So help me. Why does that work? Uh, so so it's actually backwards in that I don't think Odyssey Aquatica is immediately itself a sort of gameable concept, if you like. Interesting. I think the strength of the Paragon system is that you can sort of throw anything at it and you will have fun at the table because of these three X structures. So you could make I think you can make a Paragon game about knitting. And it would be mm. fun because everyone would be describing, you know, someone drops some rows. I don't know much about knitting, uh, you know, and then, you know, you could make a Queen's Gambit game about chess and you, instead yeah. of actually playing chess, you could describe the drama of the chess. And I think the Paragon system would provide the narrative sort of framework to make that exciting. And so I had this game concept of a life aquatic game, which I knew would be a tough sell, but right. I know that the Paragon system can turn that into a compelling uh, experience at the table. And, and, so I sit down and I play Aquatica. Like one of the things I found interesting about Agon, which of course is the only Paragon I've played, right? Mm. So I'm going to keep referring to it. Mm. Um, it there was a, it was a neat cooperative competition aspect to it that I just the balance mm. between that and how it encourages that, which again fit with the Mythic Heroes thing for me. Is that still would I still have that feeling playing Aquatica? Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually the second. You know, I was talking about what inspired Deathmatch Island, and that has yeah. exactly stood out to me as something really interesting as well. And that's what I wanted to key in on for Deathmatch Island. That was the mechanical thing that I thought I've never had this exact experience. Yeah, playing a different game, and and I want to explore it more. I want to amp it up. I want to have a whole game that's just about this sort of friendly competition. Um, so we can get back to that. But in in terms of Odyssey Aquatica, um, you know, it's inspired by sort of mid-century scientists and explorers which i know is slightly problematic I, I talk about that in the book but um uh but so in the life aquatic film obviously uh steve zisu the main character he has a rival and that's a big part of the story uh mm -hmm. and then if you look at things like venture brothers dr venture has his rivalry with other scientists and i think a big part of that sort of mid-century scientist thing is like you're all vainglorious uh egotistical maniacs and so this rivalry a between pricks. a bunch of pricks exactly <laughs> so not unlike greek heroes and so that yeah that aspect of like you're all on the scientific mission and you want to succeed together but you also want to be the one who gets the most acclaim the most recognition right. 
Um, and Odyssey Aquatica also builds on that by building out a rival, uh, a rival system. So you have a, instead of having gods who are, who are working against you, there's another oh, even more famous scientist out there who's working against you. Oh, that's um, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and, and at the end of it with Aquatica, what, what is my, my major third act, right? So we have the climax at the island. Hmm. Um, how does that fit into, and maybe I, maybe it's a way for me to get a sense of what the troubles are that they come across, right? So what are the dangers that they face uh, as they do this? Can you kind of give me a little bit of an example? Yeah. Well, so to sort of cop out on my knitting um, parallel, but Odyssey Aquatica, I did lean slightly more into the sort of mid-century adventure science, as I call it. So a lot of the expeditions, as I call them, which, which is the island equivalent, you know, there's a giant squid. So what mm-hmm. are you going to do about When I say giant squid, I mean giant mutated horrible squid that's trying to destroy a, an undersea station. So the battle might be how you're going to deal with that. Another one has an army of, um, again, mutant, like radioactive spider crabs, which are these giant creepy crabs. So there is an element of sort of, um, you know, kind of a Johnny a, Quest element, a to Johnny it. Quest element. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, there are there are expeditions that don't have that aspect. I think the first one, the Blue Pearl Reef, um, the, the big sort of climax of that is that so you're here to document this this natural wonder that has never been documented before. But your rivals are all there, the whole team's rivals, and they're also trying to document it. And so the big, the big climax is who, who sort of gets the best footage and who gets back to oh, film festivals cool. and releases um, and gets their claim, essentially. Oh, that's cool. So you, you have this movie. Um, you finally find a system that's going to allow you to, to build a game that has that look and feel that you're going for, mm-hmm. right? Then you say this cooperative competitive thing, which I've not been able to phrase or explain to people. I'm just like, you just have to play a gun. They're like, well, are you competing against each other? And I'm like, well, yes, but you're also helping each other at the same time like you like you're still together and i'm like just just sit down let me just play with me and i'll i'll show it to you you're you're tantalized by that and and now you make the jump over with deathmatch yes so you pair the two together you think this is the perfect touchstone theme for this system Mm. if i were to break into your house tonight and find the notebook where you started taking notes what would i find in those early ideas those early iterations where you're pairing these two together that i that i'll see when i back the kickstarter mm-hmm. so what didn't change from the very beginning to where it is when it's finished yeah i mean the, the absolute core of the idea so when we played Aegon, one of the characters was called lycos and he was a, a fawn a goat man um and it's kind of funny because all our characters we had a rotating strife player so we had five characters in each island a different oh that's cool a different person would run it so we all got a chance to play i'm usually the gm so it's fun for me to, to step into the player seat so we had all these characters and four out of five of them were sort of muscle bound you know heroes of olympus uh, mighty warriors and then the fifth character was this goat man called lycos whose epithet was the pure hearted and he was sort of this gentle, strange, magical creature who was kind of the ill-fitting one and not the mighty warrior necessarily. But that player just has the most uncanny luck in every contest. We ended up calling him plus one Lycos because you'd have this contest, you'd all roll your dice, someone would get like a 21 and you think, wow, surely you'll be the best. And then Lycos would get 22. Always, just plus one more. And it's so, (laughs) just again and again and again. By the end of the campaign like us had so in agon you pick up glory and certain mm-hmm. glory markers you, your name die goes up he had like a full track higher he'd lapped us essentially so he had d12 everyone else had d10 it was amazing 
Oh my gosh. And that, that really inspired Deathmatch Island because I was like, even though I was on the losing side of that, I was like, this competition and rivalry is really fun. Right. And I would love it if this campaign just ended with us all rolling dice against each other, like in a death match. Who's, who's actually the best? Let's, we've kind of been having this rivalry the whole time. Let's actually duke it out. And so that was the core of Deathmatch Island was what if there was a Paragon game where you're working together, but there's this rivalry the whole way through. And at the very end, it all builds up to... Only one can stand Thunderdome rules. Who is the best? Let's have it out. So that didn't change, right? Mm -hmm. That was, it sounds to me like that was your uh, North Star as you went through the entire process. But as you start going through the process and start going through the iterations, there were, there were times where I'm sure you had stuff early that you got rid of. Can we talk about what you got rid of, what you realized this isn't working and it needs to go away? Do you remember Mm -hmm. any items? that you tossed out? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think the biggest thing, if you look at the earliest drafts, was they were very bookkeeping focused. Um, mm. There was a lot of bookkeeping for the Strife player equivalent, the GM. Uh, so I had all these tables. I even built like with code online random generators so you could make quick random competitors. And the original idea was the GM would create every other competitor on the island, which is crazy now that I look back at it. And they would keep track of all these people. And it's because part one of the touchstones was Survivor. I love Survivor, the yep. you know, TV show. And in Survivor, it's so important that you know exactly who everyone is in the game. And it's kind of like a chess game. You're trying to see who's going to use who and who's going to go to the end and who can they work with mm-hmm. and who can they not work with. So I was trying to create that feeling by having this very defined roster of characters. But it was an absolute nightmare, for one thing, to way too much bookkeeping. And ultimately, I just found um, when you use someone else's system, essentially, like, you know, Forged in the Dark or, or Paragon, that system will have a certain grain and you kind of have to work with the grain or else you just, you're going to come unstuck. And mm-hmm. what I found was that this level of bookkeeping was working against the grain of Paragon. Paragon does not want that level of granularity and, and simulationism. Um, yeah. Even just in a playtesting form, you know, uh, in, in a Paragon game, characters get their, or players rather, get their chance to do their own narration. And that's a really exciting, fun time where the, all bets are off. They can do whatever crazy, wild stuff they want. Um, but by having all this bookkeeping and kind of concrete rules in the universe, that was like a straitjacket on them. They didn't feel they could probably, prob- uh, properly like describe whatever they wanted because they weren't sure like who's in the scene, who am I allowed to kill, right. who am I allowed to recruit. So they kind of had this very narrow window of what they're allowed to do, which went against the whole fun of, of Paragon. So anyway, what, what I changed was um, basically hand-waving who all the other competitors are. And just like in sort of TV, episodic TV logic, you represent a whole faction with one key person who you really get to know, one key NPC. And we don't try to learn every competitor. We just learn like the leader of that alliance and they stand in right. for the whole. And, and then just abstract the rest after that, right? Exactly. And yeah. You don't need to meet every person. You just need to. Yeah. And, and Agon does this too. When you go to the island of Cryos, there's a group of angry miners and there's only one NPC who's named and that's the leader of that group. And that's who you interact with, who represents that larger whole. Yeah. And, you know, as a Strife player, you also, you you know who like the key people are yeah. 
and then suddenly there's like a person who didn't exist that they <laughs> latch on to and then suddenly they become a new named character and and I'm, i would imagine that happens with deathmatch island Absolutely. too that Absolutely. they as they're describing their feats and and you know what is best I, I, that's got to be some pretty amazing things so the other thing that i hear a lot when people are talking about the design process we've talked through it which is you know think something that was the north star that never changed throughout it things that you that you played with and ended up throwing away or changing and morphing which we kind of touched on but the other part that I often hear about, Tim, is a last, the last thing that made it all work, right? So I keep hearing that, you know, yeah, I, I like it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But something's not right. Something's not right. Something doesn't right. And then I did this and it just all fell together. Did you mm-hmm. have that moment with Deathmatch? Yes. Yeah. For me, I don't know how late in the piece it was, but it was probably at least halfway through. So I'd been working on it for quite a while. And um uh, you know, Paragon, as we've been talking about, is a pretty open-ended system. Players narrate their own actions with a lot of um, freedom, which is great. That's part of the fun. Um, the nature of these deathmatch media that Deathmatch Island is inspired by is that you are in like a pretty rigidly defined game with rigid rules, and often with like explosive cutlass or something on <laughs> to force you to play by the rules. Like Battle Royale, the movie has that they have explosive cutlass, and that, that kind of thing is pretty common. Um, and so I was, I, I, in the original drafts, there were explosive collars, which is just an easy way to say, you have to play this game or else your head explodes. You know, boom, done. Um, I actually found that quite limiting. Interesting. Um, and what I, what I sort of discovered was the wanting to peek behind the curtain and see what's going on here. That is a big part of what I love about this media, and I think a lot of people do. You look at something like Squid Game, so much of the compelling aspect of that of that TV show is not just the game itself, but as people trying to see what's going on behind the scenes and to go down that corridor you're not meant to go down, and and the the undercover cop who's kind of investigating the whole thing, and um, you know how much they find out, maybe not much. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not it's not all about the investigation. The game itself is still equally important, but I think you need that aspect of of um, breaking the rules and 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 figuring out what's going on, and so that was really when Deathmatch Island fully clicked was when I added the ability, well, not the ability, I took off the explosive collars essentially. And I said to right. the characters, you can do whatever you want. You can break the game. You don't have to play this game. Um, you can go behind the curtain. You can see what production is up to. When it comes to the end, you can try and blow the whole island up. And uh, I think that's when it really sort of, again, blossomed and opened up and became a much more compelling, compelling thing. And, and what I what sounds neat about it to me, Tim, is that um, the table can decide how exactly. much they want to lean into that or not. Right. Um, which I think is very, very cool. From a from a conceptual standpoint. So you start running the game mm-hmm. you start running deathmatch with people that play games with you. Um, it's very familiar. You're obviously familiar with the system. Um, and that's important playtesting. And I understand that what I find more interesting, though, is when you're not at the table. Mm-hmm. I always find it interesting to hear when you find out or you have made it made this happen saying, I'm just going to hand you the shit and I want you to read it and play it and then tell me what you think. Um, When that first happened, was there anything that came back that surprised you? Anything that you discovered that maybe you being present at the table was not in the game uh, and needed to be in the game? or, Or was there anything that changed after you? let go of it and then had it come back to you? I think to some extent 
And not mechanically. Mechanically, I was pretty. I mean, there were tweaks here and there, but mechanically, I was pretty happy with how with how it ran when other, when other people started playtesting. I think the biggest thing was, I think when you work on a game like this and you're passionate about the touchstones, you have all this sort of genre knowledge that you can just mm. spew forth as GM and bring to the table, and so you don't necessarily need that guidance. But for some other people running it, you know, they were asking basically for guidance around like what, what. How might production show itself? What kind of creepy things might happen? And, and, and more kind of um, basically more content that they could throw in that would be genre, mm-hmm. genre appropriate. Um, and yeah, so a lot, a lot more of that came into the game after playtesting. But I mean, I think the biggest, um, the biggest win was just that, that standoff procedure at the end where the players choose to break the game or, or play to win. I mean, yeah, that, that's always a winner, and that that um, came through in playtesting. So that that was when I mm-hmm. knew that was worth um, carrying on with. Yeah, and I think what's cool about that is you know from the very beginning, right? That that we're going to have a winner to this, um, uh, and it's just like you know uh, playing ten candles. You know, you, you set the stakes at the beginning, like when we're gonna, you're all going to die, and there's nothing you can do, but you're you're all going to be dead. And this is you do the same thing here, right? Which is there's going to be a winner, um, and I think that. There's there can be an instinct to be against that from the, an RPG perspective, but I'm like, no, I mean, if like if that doesn't sound good to you, then don't play the game. Right. But sure. uh, if I know from the beginning, that's what's going to happen. I think that's good. Um, so when we're recording this, Tim, uh, the Kickstarter is not out yet, but we're, we're planning on releasing it during the Kickstarter. And that's obviously going to be the way that people are going to scroll down right now and they'll have a link to the Kickstarter. And, you know, you and I have talked about when the timing on that is there. Is there anything that you're excited about from a Kickstarter perspective? So is there things beyond uh, what we've had access to so far that when people go to the Kickstarter that they're excited about that you can talk about? Uh, it's still early days right now to talk about sort of stretch goals and whatnot. But um, I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you like the materials you've seen so far, uh, that's, not, that's not just the greatest hits. Like I think the rest of it um, speaks to that kind of, quality just as much so i'm excited for people to see the full product um some of the casts so the way deathmatch island works is you have the three islands they're big enough that you'll never experience the whole island on each playthrough so you 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 visit the same islands each time but you're always seeing different things Uh, and on each playthrough you choose a cast which is like who are the npcs we're going to be here it's cool yeah and so you know in some of the streaming i've done so far and some of the player reports those have mainly been focused on the first two casts but some of the sort of, if you like, more advanced casts, they get pretty wacky and wild. And uh, so I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty excited to see people st- sort of dig into that. Because uh, obviously you can go pretty extra with this stuff. So I bet you can. <laughs> I bet you can. So, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about some of the things that I mentioned earlier, which is some of the like the crazy other ways I've come across Tim without realizing this was all the same person. We're going to talk about a thousand years of vampire and bronze murder. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying our long form interviews with creatives on this podcast? Maybe you're craving deeper discussions about our guests or some of the RPG plays on our Twitch and YouTube channel. Well, I've got an opportunity for you. You see, Third Floor Wars now has a Patreon only Discord server. You can join a vibrant community of like minded enthusiasts diving deep into every episode of our RPG plays and podcast. 
connect with fans, engage in spirited discussions, and unlock the behind-the-scenes insights. For just a dollar a month, access a world of tabletop gaming goodness. Connect with passionate gamers who share your love for the tabletop podcast and everything produced on the third floor. As a Patreon supporter, you also enjoy ad-free episodes of this podcast. You can immerse yourselves in captivating stories and fascinating interviews without interruptions, taking your listening experience to a whole new level. By joining the Third Floor Wars Patreon community, you not only gain exclusive access to the Patreon-only Discord server, but you also support the growth of my podcast and channels. Your contributions enable me to continue creating high-quality content that entertains, educates, and upskills tabletop enthusiasts like yourself. Maybe don't wait. Join the Third Floor Wars Patreon today and unlock a world of camaraderie, discussions, and knowledge. Visit patreon.com forward slash Third Floor Wars or check the link in the show notes and come join our community. The Third Floor Wars Patreon-only Discord server awaits you. I and the other patrons can't wait to welcome you with open arms and a fistful of dice. So, Tim, um, there is there's something you and I have in common as we play games. Um, and I and just in the conversations we had so far, I think you have as much, if not more joy in playing games uh, as I do. What's different about us is that I just play the games. <laughs> there's something inside of you that says, not only am I going to play these games, but I'm going to then add a level of creativity and recount these games in, in really some pretty stunning manner. And from a timing perspective, where should we start? Should we start with Bronze Murder or with Vampire? What was first? Bronze Murder was definitely first. That's like 2010. Okay. So that's going back a while. So the first thing is I have not played this game. Mm. And I'm a li- it's, it's become a little bit essential oils for me because everybody, like I'm just a little tired of everybody telling mm. me how great this freaking game is. And, you know, it's just like, I get it. I get it. It's a great game. And, and I got to tell you, Tim, I bought the game. I booted it up. It lasted about two minutes with me. And I'm like, yeah, this is just, this is not it. So yeah. I, let's start there, which is what did I miss? Right. What, what did I not get that everybody else gets? Cause I, I'm the outlier. I don't, I don't know if you are. I mean, maybe you're the outlier, outlier now that it has the fancy steam version, but that was 90% of people's experience of Dwarf Fortress for the entire time. It's been out the last however long, 15, 18 years, something like that. It's the craziest story. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would never judge anyone for bouncing off Dwarf Fortress. I mean, when I first played it, it was all ASCII out. So it's like, you know. Was it just, really? Yeah. So you're just like a little B next to an L with some dashes up there. <laughs> you know, part of the appeal was that once you get used to it, you feel like you're, you know, in the Matrix when people look at all the code and they can see what it is. You feel like that. Someone else will look at your screen and they think you're looking at the Matrix, but oh, no, you're playing Dwarf Fortress. And you're experiencing a rich inner life of, <laughs> of drama. Well, it's, and, and it sounds like, Tim, I bounced off like the 4K version. Yes. You were playing the VHS version <laughs> yes. of it, which is amazing. So let's go to there. So you bring this game up for the first time. 
And it's ASCII characters. And this isn't 1978 that you're doing this in. What like what happened? What made you go? Oh, OK, wait, no, I'm going to give you a little bit more of my time. And then obviously turn into a huge time sink. Like wh- what caught you at the very beginning? It's just the that depth of simulation and the fact, I mean, I think, you know, as we say, the story of Dwarf Fortress has been going on for a long time and the, the sort of the passion and the dedication that um, the creators have put into it, like the level of detail, even though that obviously they've been rewarded now, which is fabulous. It's, it's not, it doesn't make any commercial sense <laughs> from the beginning, you know, um, and that was just so, so compelling. It really does. You know, I think it's in the Museum of Modern Art in their collection of you know, is it really? Yeah, yeah, it's in the MoMA collection. I'm pretty sure, and you can go there and see it. And it, that makes total sense to me because it is almost more of an artwork than a game. I mean, the mm. you know, you could drill into every dwarf and find out their like their whole, literally the whole life story, their their emotions, you know, what they're wearing, um, what's you know, one might have a sore finger or a skin problem or whatever. And that's every dwarf in your fortress. And and um, if you're willing to sort of dig through all that, like an archaeologist, the the stories and and the procedural drama that's in there is just amazing. And it does have that sense of discovery. Like you are discovering this amazing story that no one else knows about that's happening in this little terminal on your screen. And what happens to you is you need to tell this story. Hmm. Um, So when did that happen? At what point during play did you realize I'm going to do something with this? So yeah, it was, it was during bronze murder. It was after the events as described in that in that playthrough, which is basically I had been so, so Dwarf Fortress is quite hard to learn, and uh, part of the fun of the game it doesn't have any goals. So you set your own goals. So something I've been trying to learn was something that's called a pump stack, where you pump water up from below with these things called um, screw pumps. I think they were, and it's quite technically tricky. And I was trying to do it across like eighty levels, and I wanted to pump water from the bottom so I could make a moat and some other waterworks up the top. Um, and when I got to the bottom, I uncovered this, um, I'm just recapping the story now, but I uncovered this forgotten beast that made its way all the way up my stupid pump stack and it destroyed most of my fort and only survived because I got two dwarves to, to wall themselves into the storeroom. So they built like a brick wall. So the monster couldn't get them, killed the rest of the fort. They were then stuck in there, but because they're in the stockpile, they could survive for a long time because they had food and water. Uh, and eventually a human merchant caravan arrived. The beast attacked it. It had guards. The guards killed the beast. And then my dwarves could break down the wall and, and start rebuilding this fortress. Uh, and to me, this was just, I can only compare it to like, if you go hiking or something, you go somewhere hardly anyone has been and you discover this amazing site and you, you want to share it with people. I just yeah. couldn't, I couldn't not share it. And I felt I, none of my friends, I couldn't just tell people because Sort of like role playing, especially, I don't know if this is true anymore with streaming, but it used to be the number one rule of role playing is nobody, nobody wants to hear about your character. Nobody wants to hear about your campaign. So that was kind of instilled in me was no one wants to hear about your stupid game. <laughs> Please so tell you, me about your cleric. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I really wanted to tell people about this game. So I knew if I, if I wanted to do that, it had to be compelling. And so I was like, okay, well, let's take some time on this. This deserves to have some artwork and some illustration. And I'm, I'm really, I really want people to know the story. So I'm really going to try and tell it in a way that people will suffer through it. And it's very difficult for the game to be mentioned in bron- without bronze murder being part of the conversation. I mean, the two have been, been tied together uh, very, very, very close to each other. 
when you started doing it though, and started putting it out there, nobody was reading it. Right. And then like, do you remember when everybody started to get it? When everybody started going like, holy shit, you need to go read this. You need to go, go through this. I mean, honestly with bronze murder, I didn't expect, I mean, I actually created that to share with my friends, none of whom liked Dwarf Fortress or understood it or wanted to play it much like yourself, which is fair enough. <laughs> so I actually made it for people I know in real life because I was like, dude, you know, check this out. It was kind of the vibe. And then I just shared it on like a forum I'm on to share with some online friends. Again, just sharing it with, I don't know, a dozen people on a Team Fortress 2 forum or something back in 2010. <laughs> And honestly, it was like uh, wildfire. Someone shared it to Reddit. And within that week, it got like a million views. It was at the top of the front page. Oh, my Reddit. God. Yeah, it got on all those other sites that used to exist, like up, what were those sites? Like Dig and Upvote and whatever else they used oh to be. Oh, God, I don't even remember. The graveyard. <laughs> the yeah, graveyard. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, it was, it was pretty much like, yeah, it was a true overnight viral sensation. Which was That's crazy. incredible. Mm. That's incredible. So then after Bronze Murder, you play really uh, an incredible solo game, um, Thousand Year Vampire, which Mm. um, I own. And like, I've got like this weird religious ceremony I've got around it. Like, I don't want to touch it until I'm ready. Right. Like, I'm going to get the notebook. Like, And it is. And and I've talked about that game so much that like it's it's going to be a special thing Mm. for me. Right. Mm. It's not something I'm going to flip through. You grab it and you start working through it. And obviously you found the game compelling. But did you know that you were going to have to tell the story right right as you were going through it? Or was it when it was over? Like when did you realize I'm 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 not done with this story? Mm. I need to share this story. Yeah, it was actually the opposite. So with Bronze Murder, the, the story happened and I was like, I have to share this. But with Thousand Year Old Vampire, it was quite different because I, like a lot of people, had been very skeptical of solo role-playing. Mm-hmm. Um, this, you know, it hasn't been that big a deal for that long, or a few years perhaps. You know, I guess people say since COVID, but I don't know. Um, you know, Iron Sworn and stuff. Uh, but I had always been skeptical because so much of the fun of the hobby for me is, you know, hanging out with friends and the social aspect. And so the idea of just doing it by myself didn't seem that compelling, which is stupid when you think about it because I play video games by myself. I, read books, but I do lots of things by myself. Not everything has to be with your friends. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> you know, I've never thought about it that way. <laughs> there's no reason this should be any different. Even as a GM, right. like I prep campaigns by myself. I do role playing right. stuff by myself. Uh, but I had the skepticism and I sort of, in a weird kind of way, found it hard to justify the time it would take to play a solo role playing game. That's interesting. And so then I was like, well, what if I give this a go? Because I it become a bigger and bigger thing. More and more people were talking about solo role playing. I was like, oh, I should give this a go. This seems interesting. But to sort of justify to myself the time spent, mm. I was like, I'm going to turn this into a bit of an art project and I'm going to document whatever I make just for my own, just to sort of turn it into a bit of a creative exercise. Um, and so I did that. And, you know, I was just surprised that it resonated with people. And uh, I was so pleasantly surprised by how good the game was and how compelling that experience was. So what started is just like a, a little art project, you know, that story did really take, overtake me and became something I felt compelled to share. And I was, yeah, it's just an amazing experience. And what's interesting to me about it when I read it, um, and, and you know, I'm very, um, sequential art is something I'm very familiar with. I'm a huge mm-hmm. comic book reader. Right. And, and this is in many ways it read to me as a vertical comic, 
uh, as I'm as I'm going through it, it it's it's panel. Right. Mm-hmm. And 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 there's a timing that happens between the panels, which is what I've always loved about sequential art. Um, and I'm just a, a stupid fan of your art style. But um, and then on top of that, you know, you were you were playing through and working with the game to create a very you know compelling story. Um, you, but this is super interesting to me. You're like, all right, in order for me to justify what I'm going to do, I need this to be part of a project. So the project is what opened the door to start playing the game. Was there a time when it just all kind of melded together and it was in exact, like at any point did you say, okay, I'm going to put the project away. I'm just going to play the game out or like, or, or or times where you're just like, I'm tired of the game, but I've got this project going. So I'm going to keep going. Or did they just go like tandem with each other the whole way. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And they were yeah, perfectly in sync really because from the first prompt like um you know what's so genius about that game is it's not just a series of prompts, the the memory system it, it sort of weaves in an emotional element that I really wasn't expecting. And from the start like I you create your little group of NPCs to begin with, so I had my father and a, um a love interest and like an old woman in a cave or something like that. And, you know, whenever you create NPCs, I kind of had ideas about how these stories would go. But one of the first, I think, two or three prompts I got was that like 100 years passes or something. And by the rules of the game, like those people are mortal. They're all dead now. And so it's kind of like, wham. Like I had all these (laughs) ideas about these stories I would tell with these people and these relationships I would have. But now I'm a vampire. 100 years have gone by. They're all dead. Yeah. that really put me in that mindset of the whole point of the game, which is what it's like to sort of be immortal and, and to have mortals around you who you care about just disappear on the wind. And, and over time, you care less and less about them because you know they're not going to last long. Uh, and so there's a lot of melancholy in that game, which I love. You know, I went into it just um, thinking I was going to create a cool story about a rad vampire. <laughs> Instead, I made a sad story about a sad vampire. Yeah, it is. Um, And again, I haven't played it yet, but I've talked about the game enough that I have a sense of it. And boy, Tim, I hear that all the time, which is people walk away saying, you know, I have played, you know, Vampire the Masquerade. I've played, you know, uh, you know, Highlander themed campaigns and stuff, but I didn't understand immortality until mm, I till absolutely. I did ran this game yeah, um, and, and his ability. Yeah, mm, his ability to, yeah. to make that happen in the game to make him to make you give a shit about four NPCs that you just created to, <laughs> yeah, on page one. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, that's really, really cool. Yeah. That's really, really cool. But so go, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to answer your question a bit more, which was uh, whether, you know, creating the art versus playing the game. Um, I mean, yeah. for me, like part of my creative process is, is often what inspires me to create something is not to use the skills, but it's like, I wish there was this in the world. And then you think, Oh, I could, mm. I could just do that. And so then you do it and you get to have the thing that you just imagined, which is very compelling. And so in this case, the two were so in tandem because you have this experience in the game and it's like, oh, I want to see that. So I want to make the art. It's not because I'm lashed to this project and I have to make the art. It's because I want to see what that looks like. And the only person who can do that is me. So, okay, I'll do it. And then on the flip side, because I had this project, I wanted to keep playing the game, but I also wanted to keep on top of the art. So often finishing the art was like that the reward was like get to play a bit more of the game. And so oh, it became this okay. virtual cycle where it's like, oh, if I finish the panels tonight, tomorrow I can play two more prompts. <laughs> and then I'd have to I'd have to make myself stop because I don't want to pile up too much artwork for myself. You yeah. just kept placing little bits of cheese exactly. in front of yeah, yourself yeah, yeah, as yeah. you go through. That's great. 
So now I have to harken back. Was that what happened with Duskfall? Is that where the beginnings of those maps came from? Um, where you felt compelled, like I need to, I need to map this place out. Like where, where did, and I'm totally taking a right turn on you. No, no, I apologize, yeah. but. Uh, ab- absolutely. I mean, to be honest, the, the genesis of that project was John released some playtest material around um, Flame Without Shadow, his blue coat supplement. And that included a detailed map of Coleridge, one of the districts. Mm-hmm. And I love, I mean, I think just the idea of zooming into Dosville for whatever reason, super compelling. I love that map. And I was like, well, John's done a great thing. And once again, I was like, I wanted to see one of these for, for I wish John would do one for um, Crow's Foot. And then I was like, well, right. you know, I could do that. <laughs> so I just did it. And people loved it. This is Google Plus days. People loved it on Google Plus. So I was like, I should just do the whole city. And this was for my home game. So I did. And I was sharing it. And, um, you know, at, at that time, I was very reluctant to monetize my hobby. That was like an important mm-hmm. kind of touchstone for me because I'd done that with illustration and it had turned what had been a source of joy into like a job. So I was very yep. hesitant to do that with role playing. Um, but John actually contacted me in, in a very supportive way. I was like, hey, you know, these are great. If you want to sell them, we could work out a royalty deal because. Watched in the Dark covers the rules, but the Dosfall IP, you have to license off John, which is fair enough. So we worked out, you know, that was very generous of him and we worked out a deal. And um, I could kind of break my own monetization rule because I'd already made these for my home game. So I, I wasn't right. doing extra work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you still kept your virginity. <laughs> exactly. 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 Um, That's great. <laughs> yeah. And so I released them and yeah, the you know, people that resonated with people. So that's been great. I- and, 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 and again, Tim, you know, I've talked about this, but like, I'll never forget when I bought them and I like, I kept zooming in and I'm like, holy shit, like it's all here. Yeah. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, and it's funny when I play blades and I hope you take this through, I don't use them, hmm. but, yeah. but, but I love them. Right. Hmm. So like, I don't map out blades. Right. And I don't say you're hmm. in this building and then they're in that building stuff. We, we, we stay very theater in the mind with it. But there, but I'm so inspired by it, right? Exactly. And, yeah, it, and, exactly and it gives me, yeah, it's it's really neat how I I use your maps in a way that I've never used maps before uh, in RPGs. Which is, yeah, which is that cool. was some of my initial hesitation. Was yeah, blades is sort of meant to be played in this theater of the mind style, and it can be quite improvisational. So you don't want to. Mm-hmm. It's not the kind of game where you put down a map and you're like, you know, right. putting down a tactical grid or anything. Um, but I think maps. Yeah, they, they can be inspirational in their way, absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, being able to grab a landmark or a place name. What I love is seeing reports online of people discussing the maps and some little thing I named became like a major feature of their campaign and just, you know, that kind of stuff. Just yeah. happened at the season two finale of our Blades game. Oh, wow. um, they, were, they were at the wharf on the docks and just a couple labels that you'd put on those maps as I was starting to kind of build out potential situations. I'm like, I'm going to use this and I'm going to use that. And it turned into something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the beauty of it, you know, and, and it's funny how you can just label something and it becomes a prompt and, and, and turns into uh, something completely different. So speaking of blades, we're going to take a quick break. And we're going to talk about something I've saved for last because I'm stupid excited about it. We're going to talk about blades 80 or I'm sorry. We're going to talk about blades in 68. We'll be right back. I have no idea what this is, but the <laughs> title alone, I've got so many ideas. I can't oh, wait to find out. Great. That'll be fun then. Yeah. <laughs> so Tim has been very patient with me as far as scheduling this. We've had, had a couple bumps all driven by me because I'm an idiot and he's been just so gracious about allowing me yeah. to reschedule it. 
<laughs> and of course, because I'm a terrible person and a terrible host, like three minutes before we come live, I say, oh, here's the call sheet, by the way, to let you know what we're talking about. And, you know, and one of the things that I always ask um, people before they come on is like, you know, I know what I want to talk about, but what do you want to talk about? So I get back from Tim. I want to talk about blades in 68. And I'm like, I have no idea what this is. And I cannot wait to talk about it because just the name makes me want to talk about it. So <laughs> let's start by talking about what the hell it is. Yeah, I mean. I am also stupidly excited about Blades and 68. Um, this is another thing where I've had to, I got so excited about this, worked on it for several months and it, I had to make myself put it down so that I could continue with Deathmatch Island, which I'm also very excited mm -hmm. about. But, um, you know, I've only got so much time in the day and, uh, you know, you have to, you have to have some discipline. Um, but again, I'm so excited to finish Deathmatch Island, both to get it out there, but also so I can get back to Blades and 68. Yep. Because, yeah, I am so excited about this. And um, it is another case where I, it was the thing of like thinking, oh, I wish this existed in the world. And then thinking, oh, I could just make that. And then thinking, okay, <laughs> I have to make this now. And the more I sort of scratched the itch, the more I was like, oh, there's definitely something here. Um, and so basically Blades in 68 uh, takes, so Blades in the Dark, I think canonically is set in like 868 IE, Imperial Era, after the Cataclysm. And so this brings the timeline forward. Oh, again, to talk about Flame without Shadow, the, the Blue Coat supplement that John worked on. Something I love that he did there was he advances the timeline 10 years. There's a little detail in there. Advances the timeline 10 years. Didn't need to do that. You could do Blue mm -hmm. Coat supplement at the base timeline. And he says, okay, now there's um, airships everywhere and there are automatic coil guns. So people have kind of automatic weapons. It's like, wow, okay, <laughs> that's cool. That changes everything. Changes everything. And I, I love that he kind of has this um, dynamic living quality to the Dosfall IP. He's not like, okay, everybody loves Blades in the Dark, so it's going to be 868 forever. The setting is going to be what it is, and, and that's it. We're not going to touch it. This is Star Wars. Everything stays the same. No, this not Star Wars. Um, but so out of that, partly out of that, um, came this idea, well, what if we went even further? We go for over 100 years. And we do the 60s, the 70s, you know, Blades and 68. So it's like a completely different take on Dosfall. Um, mm -hmm. And the idea is to have this kind of like slightly unsettling. There's a lot that's familiar, but it's also totally different in the way that if you traveled from, I don't know, 1860s London to 1970s London, yeah. uh, you know, you'd have some kind of weird reverse Austin Powers um, <laughs> experience. Yeah, uh, yeah, so much fun. And obviously, I should say, you know, I was playing a ton of Deathloop, and um, mm. in the past year, Deathloop has these dishonored Easter eggs. And then I think this year or last year, sometime they confirmed that it is the same universe, which kind of blew my mind a bit. I didn't know that. No, yeah, they confirmed that canonically, um, Deathloop is the dishonored universe, like a hundred years in the future. Interesting. Like, Shit, that's really interesting. What if you know? What if we did the same thing to Blades? And so, so uh -huh. that's what it is. So, so where do you start? So you've, you, you know what you want to make, you know what you want to play, which means you're going to have to make it in, in order for you to play it. What's next in that process? How, how do you, how do you get up to 68? Uh, so the next step was, you know, part of the inspiration or the, the rationale for the project was I have these detailed maps. How fun would it be to kind of like revisit those maps? I wouldn't have to start from scratch. I can keep a lot of the artwork, but change mm -hmm. the fonts, change the colors. I can add new districts. I can change districts. I can show how things change over time. I can rename stuff. And so that's actually where I started was to redo the maps in full color in the style of like a 1960s roadmap. 
and so much of the world building and just the vibes. It was just like, what are the vibes of this project? Because this isn't, this is just going to be straight blades in the dark rules. It's meant to be completely portable. So it's not a forged in the dark game as such. It's a supplement. And so in that way, it's all vibes and atmosphere. And so I wanted to start with the map, which would be all vibes. And as soon as I started working on it, you know, I was like, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> I'm going I'm I'm to keep going. This map looks great. Well, how cool is it that I just got done talking about how your maps, like were, were how I used your maps as inspirations for my games. Mm. And it sounds like you used your maps for the same thing, exactly. right? Exactly. That you started building it for 68 to just to, to understand what it was. So do you have a notebook there? So as you're working on the maps and you realize, oh, this is part of 68 now. What are some of those early things, those early notes that you said that you said, you know, this needs to be this. This this is what I'm going to use to define 68. Yes. Well, you know, I had a lot of fun. I did. I did have a sort of a scratch document where I was just jotting down ideas, which is how I always start any project. Keep very loose and um, brainstormy. Um, you know, I mean, I said Deathloop was an inspiration, but the interesting thing about that game is is the reason no one knew it was Dishonored Universe for a long time is because that game doesn't show you anything about the wider world. It's very set mm-hmm. on this particular scenario, this particular situation. So there's only so much inspiration I could draw from that game because it's not a world building. It's not a game about the world building. So I had to sort of do all that from scratch, which is great. I didn't want to like copy another game. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, early touchstones. I mean, it helps that I, you know, Deathmatch Island has a very mid-century, 20th century aesthetic. It's, it's an aesthetic I love have since design school uh it's an aesthetic i don't think you see in a lot of role-playing games so i'd love Mm -hmm. to get the chance to kind of explore that and 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 show it um and so yeah i mean a lot of the touchstones are stuff i love anyway like sort of um, early bond films from especially roger moore kind of zaniness which i think is a perfect fit um for kind of that blades in the dark like super science and and and, uh, over the top antics um, and then again, I love kind of like 70s, 60s, 70s, um, British crime flicks, like, um, get Carter and, and the Italian job, anything with Michael Caine. So that was a huge influence and felt like perfectly at home with what is blades in the dark hundred years on. It's got to be like a Michael Caine film, you know, grimy London, um, in the sixties or seventies. Uh, and then I guess the third sort of pillar is. I also love um, 60s and 70s sort of retro sci-fi, especially dystopic futures like Soylent Green, Logan's Run, right. Blood Planet of the Apes. And so, you know, the aspect of Blades in the Dark is such a supernatural setting and it's very gothic. So what would that supernatural stuff look like 100 years on? And to me, that's kind of, it's less gothic, ghostly stuff and more weird retro sci-fi, paranormal <laughs> kind of things. And, and- you say, you know, it's portable, right? So it's not a situation where you're, you're creating a forge in the dark game. This is still blades in the dark as you're playing. When you started playing the game and with other people, obviously, was there something that surprised you that, that made it not blades anymore, even though it was blades? Like how, how much, how much does this change thing in play? Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing about the blades in the dark system even if you don't change it that much, if you change the flavor of it, it does feel like a different game. I think that's why Forged in the Dark has been such a successful framework. Yeah. Um, you look at something like Scum and Villainy, uh, I think that very elegantly just tweaks a couple of things, but the core system is pretty similar to Blades, which I think is a strength. 
And when I first read Scum and Villainy, I was like, oh, doesn't seem that different. But then you play it and it feels like Star Wars. It feels like Cowboy Bebop. It feels like a totally different thing. Um, and so obviously this game doesn't tweak anything. <laughs> but because the flavor is so different, the equipment list is different, the abilities are different, the crew sheets are different. Um, it really does feel like a different game, but because the rules are so similar, you get that thing, you know, to quote George Lucas, it kind of feels like it rhymes a bit and sort of yeah. weirdly familiar, but sort of strangely different, which is exactly, you know, that's exactly what I was going for. So what condition is it in now and what, where is it headed? Yeah. So it is, I would say 80% done. I've got, I've got the map. I've got all the playbooks, which again, they sort of all riff on the original playbooks, but uh, different again. So only one of them has the same title, which is the hound, but I've kind of decided that hundred years on the idea of the hound is completely different. Um, but the other playbooks are all, are all quite different. I added a playbook in, so I sort of rethought, I always liked the hull, the hull playbook. Mm-hmm. I, I never actually got it to the table, but for this, I was like, let's make this a core playbook that you can play from the start. And so it kind of becomes a um, Clockwork Orange type thing where, cool. uh, you know, it makes sense to me that the state would use the hull processes like uh, a criminal procedure. So that you take a criminal, you use their soul to power a, a hull that you can use for law enforcement like Robocop. And then the body is left as a hollow, which is like a compliant sort of zombie figure, just like Clockwork Orange. Dude, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fun. I really want to play one of those. And so when you, when you play this Hull character, you're a criminal soul powering the sort of robot body. And part of that playbook is rediscovering your memories. You, don't, you start with no <sighs> memories of who you were, but those kind of come back to you like Robocop. And it's kind of, what do you do with that? Do you, you, know, do you try to reconnect with your former life, et cetera? Um, so anyway, sorry, a bit off topic. Um, so all the playbooks are done. Cruise sheets are mostly done. Um, I've got a complete detailed faction write-up like in Blades in the Dark. So every faction mm-hmm. has like uh, clocks and NPCs and there's like 30 of those. Again, wow. a whole bunch of new ones because I was thinking, you know, 100 years on, gangs don't last, most gangs don't last 100 years, right? So right. everything's quite different. But then there are a few that are the same, which is fun. So the Unseen, who are like the Illuminati, they're still going to be around 100 years on. But you mm-hmm. know, what's, what's different? What's the same? They've got a volcano base now, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and sharks. They have sharks. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, so that's all done. So, uh, so there's just some more detailed district write-ups to do. And basically the, the, the format we'll take is this, this whole detailed city map, um, all the playbooks, crew sheets, and then some kind of um, basically booklet that will have like all the factions, the district write-ups. Uh, and all the, you know, basically lore stuff, like information you might need. In the same way that Blades in the Dark has all these tables, like of elements you can bring to the table to improvise with. I want to do the same, but for 68. So, Tim, in, in this hour that we've been talking, um, I've learned a few things. Uh, and and, and I, I think I understand you a little bit more as a creator. But, and you sitting down with your original maps and Fast forwarding them a hundred years, like I can imagine you really enjoying that process. Mm. But then you just got done telling me all of this other stuff that you've been doing for Blade 68. Like, do you enjoy the writing? Do you enjoy all the other parts that go into making something like 68 or making Deathmatch? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, before I ever touched design or illustration, uh, I was really into uh, 
I guess writing. I wrote a lot of mm-hmm. um, uh, stupid fan fiction and stuff for myself. I mean, the writing. I I love writing. My mum's a writer. I think I was a writer before I was an illustrator or designer. So that is a part I I love as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I love game design. Again, before I properly got into illustration and design, I was like a forge cult member. <laughs> I love the forge. <laughs> but around two thousand one, alone. <laughs> I was like 17, 18. I was spending so much time oh, on there. I wow. released like 10 games in a year. Um, Ron Edwards would do this thing. I think he called it beef injection or something strange, but he would, um, he would take a game each uh, month. And really, it was very generous of his time, but he would spend the time to really critique it and ask questions in a sort of Socratic way. And uh, a couple of my games got that treatment. And um, oh, That's cool. So I do have that background and I love that stuff. I love, um, I love the game design yeah, and the writing. And so, you know, Part of the reason I can't help myself with these kind of projects is, is just having the chance to synthesize and bring together all these um, different things that I enjoy doing. So illustration, yeah. design, writing, game design. The chance to do all that in one project is just so satisfying. And well, it sounds like you're scratching a lot of itches, right? Exactly. In, yeah. in, in through that process. Um, and the different steps and phases that you go through with something like Deathmatch Island with 68 um is it hard to do the last hundred yard dash is it hard for you to finish oh yeah i mean yeah i don't you know it's the old 80 20 rule that that last 20 percent takes 80 percent of the effort and yeah usually it's like the least fun there's no excitement about fixing typos and readjusting your layout because you had to add a new page because of playtest changes. And now I have to like fiddle every page of the book. <laughs> yeah. Nobody I enjoys enjoying your voice. <laughs> <laughs> I may be doing some of that right now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that part is tough, but I mean, there are two things that get me through. One is I'm pretty strict about working on one thing at a time. And so the, Oh, good for you. The, I uh, don't always stick to that, but I try to, the, the appeal of working on Blades in 68 is motivation to finish the fiddly little details at the end of Deathmatch Island. Uh, and the second thing I'd say is that, um, kind of like John, I guess, I, I worked in creative agencies over my career as a graphic designer. And so you just learn, you are forced to have a certain like creative discipline, like it's just part of the job. And sometimes you may not feel inspired, but you just got to sit down and do the damn thing. And so I do have that muscle. Yeah, my my wife had a career in agency work, mm-hmm. and uh, the one thing that I learned there is like you learn how to work on stuff you don't give a shit about. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're just like this is this has got to get done. It's got to get done by tomorrow. So I'm just gonna freaking do it. Yeah, hundred percent. And it has to look like you did give a shit about it. You know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 in my I I work for a consultancy agency. And it, it, it transports. <laughs> it, it applies there too. Yeah. So this last segment, Tim, is something that's become very popular on the show, and it's when I kind of um ask you to stop talking about what you make and start talking about what you consume. Cause it's, it's been very interesting to learn what are other people creating that you're like, Holy shit. Like, like put it in my veins. Mm-hmm. So recently has there been anything that you have read, played, watched that um, kind of took over a little bit and, and became a bit of obsession And the same way we were talking about, you know uh, you know, door forge and stuff like that. Has, has that happened to you recently? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, the thing that jumps immediately to mind is um, the latest season of Australian Survivor, which is called Heroes vs. Villains. It was a Heroes vs. Villains season. It was just, oh, the season was so good. It just wrapped up this week. Um, if you are 
have any interest in Survivor, even if you don't, I really recommend trying to track down the show. This was just all time great by international standards. I love the Australian Survivor franchise. Um, it's quite different to the American one. Uh, What's longer, different? Uh, longer episodes, more episodes per week. Uh, so you get a it kind of digs into the characters a bit more. Um, also, because it's a much younger franchise, this is like season eight or something compared to, I think Australia's up to, uh, sorry, the US is up to like 43 or right. something like that, 42. Uh, so because it's younger, there aren't as many twists and turns and complications. It's a much sort of simpler version of the game, which is quite refreshing. Uh, and so you get that kind of a bit more purity of gameplay, if you like, mm-hmm. for a Survivor fan. <laughs> but this season, I mean, Heroes versus Villains, uh, you know, as a Survivor fan, like uh, it's just, it's the beautiful game, you know, it's not soccer, it's, it's Survivor. And uh, don't add why, soccer fans. Why, why? I mean, and, and for those of you listening, I don't know if you can hear it in Tim's voice, but I see it in Tim's face. Like Tim loves the show. I can just <laughs> see it in his face. But, but, but I, I'm tr- I don't know if I understand why yet. Hmm. I mean, partly I think, you know, it's such a, it's a game, but it's such mm-hmm. a microcosm, dare I say, of life itself in that, you know, outplay, outwit, outlast, you have uh, only one person, it's kind of, you know, this is a major touchstone for Deathmatch Island, but just the premise that only one person can win, but to win, you're going to need an alliance, you're going to have to work with others. And so there's this funny amazing tension where you are working with people and you need absolute trust and loyalty. You need genuine social connection, but you know that you're going to have to turn on each other because only one person can win. And so that tension of uh, trying to build genuine social bonds with underneath that everyone knows the knives will come out is such an interesting thing to me. And um, just the skills necessary to win the game, you know, you need, there's a challenge component. So people who are physically Uh strong have an advantage. Um, there's the social element I talked about, such a big part of the game. You need a strong social game. Uh, and then finally, there's, there's the strategic part where it is a bit like chess. There are alliances, there are backstabbing, there's votes. And uh, you know, people who can work through all the permutations of this person will vote this way and we'll split the vote and we'll do this and that. The speed with which some people think is just breathtaking. And then you have players who combine all three of those skill sets and they're amazing because it's like, wow, you're an all-rounder. You're yeah. yeah, you're incredible. And then there are people who only have one skill, but they have that skill so strongly that um, they can just dominate the game. And not to spoil anything, but that's why this season of Heroes versus Villains was so amazing. This this character called George, who is an absolute Australian just character, like you know, he's very <laughs> it's hard to describe, but he is absolutely Australian and very interesting and uh, not you know one of a kind kind of personality. And he is physically not intimidating he's got no challenge game socially he's a bit odd so i wouldn't say he's a strong social game but strategically he's just a mastermind like if this was medieval times he would be the evil vizier or something and to see that play out over the season him just running circles around everyone else um he even calls himself king george as a nickname um (laughs) so for me when i role play i often draw on survivor characters is like if i need an npc on the fly it's like oh what would this what would this person from survivor do so you know, one thing that's often talked about, because um, Survivor was, was genre defined, right? Mm. Um, there's kind of like reality TV before and after Survivor. And, you know, there's there's all constant discussion um, about, you know, how much of this is really them, how much of them is them playing a character, and then how much of this is just producer created, right? And and I imagine that um, all of that is on a spectrum. Mm. Um 
that and and, and I don't think there's I, I would be surprised if there's a definitive answer to that because I, you can go macro or micro for it. But here's a little role playing game for you. I, I, I arranged to have you hired. You now are working on the next season of hmm. of Australia Survivor. And now you see you see where all those knobs are, if they're at two or, or at eight. What's your best guess? How much of this do you think is really people being themselves actually going through and spontaneously coming up with this stuff and, and, and really competing and how much of this is created either manipulated on site. Like I need you to be a little bit more Mm, of this character mm. or how much of it is also created in the editing room too. Do you have a sense of like, if you had to pick? Well, firstly, I love that question because I love the reality TV conspiracy theorist (laughs) theorism. That's such a big part of Deathmatch Island. I love that like people watch these shows and you never really know like what's production, what's production up to. Is this person really doing well or is it, I mean, that was really the core idea of Deathmatch Island was instead of glory, you get followers and the more followers you get, the better you'll do in the game because production's like, oh, this person's great TV. They need to get further. They need to do better. We can't have them. Oh my God, that's great. Yeah. So that is, I love that stuff. Um, I mean, for me, like I love The Bachelor as well. And The Bachelor, I would say, is like an eight. I reckon there's a ton of production interference there. I'm actually a Survivor truther. And I think <laughs> Survivor's like a two. I think that I don't think they yeah. work with Survivor too much. I mean, I know with Australian Survivor, they have what's called Frankenbytes. So they'll, you could tell that they have chopped up someone's audio to make the sentence they want. So obviously, that is a lot of like interference. There's a lot of them mm-hmm. creating narratives. But listen, you know, I'm a super fan, so I listen to the exit interviews and all the press outside the game. And I think it pretty much matches pretty well. I don't think it's that false. And even when they're Frankenbite, uh, I think they, they are honestly trying to pu- they're trying to more clearly package for the TV in a comprehensible way something that really happened on the island. Yeah, and, and we can do that in five seconds as opposed to having to make you watch this five hours of exactly. footage, right, in exactly. order to capture the same thing. Um, so my wife uh, watches every edition of housewives. Um, and I don't know how big that franchise is where you are. Um, do you guys have housewives? Yep. We had, we had real housewives of, um, Auckland. (laughs) So, and, and, and like my wife loves these shows, right. And, And for her, it's, it's her mindless TV. I've got my own version of mindless TV, TV that I can just put on. And, uh, Columbo is one of them where I can just, I can just put Columbo on. I've seen this episode four times already and I, you know, I, hey, do you I like, can um, half, do you like poker face? Speaking of Columbus? Oh, poker, don't get me started on poker face. <laughs> okay. Okay. Like I'm so in love with poker face. Okay. I haven't watched it yet. So I was just looking for a recommendation. But. So here's what's great about poker face. Hmm. As a guy who has always loved Columbo and, and like, I like the other shows in that genre from that time, especially I like, I love Angela Lansbury. I love murder. Mm. She wrote, but there was always something about Peter Falk, something about mm. Columbo that just has always loved it. And part of it was the, um, the very unique reverse structure of Columbo, mm. because unlike murder, she wrote, you don't know the murderer until the end, mm. but the entire first act of every Columbo episode is you watch the person get killed by the person who sure. gets killed. Yeah. Right. And then the second act is Columbo figuring it out. Yeah. And the third act is, Columbo putting the screws to him and it's just amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And Peter Falk is beautiful through the whole thing. Mm. And what's really cool about what Ryan Johnson and her have done with Poker Face is it's just enough Columbo 
that if you love Columbo, you're like, oh, my God, like this is she's Peter Falk. She mm-hmm. is. But she's not. And it's it's structured like Columbo, but it's not. And so it's there's a weird freshness to it that that still is nostalgic. I don't know. You got oh, dude, you got to watch it. Kind of that difference between a homage and a pastiche, right? Like, yeah, something that builds it. on it versus something that is just sort of a cheap imitation. And, and I've like, I liked her in Orange, uh, the New Black. I really enjoyed Russian Doll, um, and and that's when I kind of realized that she was kind of a big deal. Um, now I I would kill people for her now <laughs> sure, after yeah. watching Poker Face. Like yeah. she is that that good. Yeah, right, okay. And what's incredible about it is the characters that she's playing in each of those are not drastically different, but, hmm. but, but there's still a huge range that I'm seeing with her as an actor. Like, Oh, I just, it, uh, it's also, unfortunately for a lot of people has put Ryan Johnson in a whole new category for me now where I'm yeah, like, the, the don't you, guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Take, take, take his name out of your mouth. Right. Like, like he's <laughs> like at a whole new level now for me. So yeah. uh yeah, you're going to, you're going to have to check that out. Okay. Can't wait. Sorry. I interrupted. You're talking about real housewives. Well, yes. And I, I don't even can't remember. So, and this is the last question I'll ask and we'll wrap this up. But um, I sat down with my wife because I'll sit there and watch it with her, too. And I know exactly what it is. And I asked her, I was like, honey, like. How real is this? Hmm. You know, I asked her the same question I asked you and I and I didn't ask you this. I'm like, and does it matter? And, and it was really neat because my, my wife was just like, I don't give a shit. Craig. Like, I don't care if it's real or not. Like, hmm. I just love it. Hmm. Is that it would would finding out that survivors not a two it's an eight would that ruin it for you to an extent i think it actually would which is sort of paradoxical um just because yeah for me like i watch i'm a reality tv fan to an extent i've I've watched a lot of the bachelor and bachelorette i've I've watched some real housewives but i do kind of put survivor in a separate category so those other shows i know there's a ton of production interference and yeah like your wife i don't i don't care (laughs) it doesn't make a difference (laughs) You know, I mean, when I watch, um, I don't know, The Mandalorian, I know that stuff didn't really happen, but I can, <laughs> I can enjoy, I can enjoy the story. Um, but for Survivor, yeah, I think it has a special enough place in my heart that I would shed a tear if I found out Santa Claus wasn't real. <laughs> so, Tim, there's really a lot of things you could be doing on a Monday morning, and you made the stupid decision to come here and talk <laughs> with me. So, I want you to know how much I appreciate you making the time. Uh, it's been a blast, Craig. Thank you so much. Oh, and everybody, you already know the routine. Scroll down and all the links are down below. So um, go check out that Kickstarter and get, realize like it was and everybody listening, you know that it doesn't take much for me to lo- like fall in love and buy an RPG. But it's rare that like I read four sentences and like I'm like, you know, take my money. And that's exactly what happened here. But I also need to do this. You have listened to the entire episode. You made it to the very end. And I appreciate you doing that. So I appreciate you too. take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floorheads That was outstanding, my friend. <laughs> Good. It's literally exactly what I want from the show. Fantastic. Great. 
and you're okay? Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah. All right. What I'll do is I will give a little brief blurb, uh, which will cover kind of the overview. And I think I'll just dive right into when you first started getting the ideas. And if this just, you know, if this bleeds into us talking about Aquatica and stuff, then we can mm, lead sure. it all together. Right. So I, I don't need these segments to be the way I've listed. Um, so let's just see how the conversation goes. Mm-hmm. No problem. All right. I'll bring us back. Oh, you're getting me super excited. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not actually sure when the Kickstarter will run, but I'll check with Sean this week. And, um... Yeah. And if I can get a week at week notice, yeah, right. That'd be great. Um, and, th- and then what I can do is push it up in the queue. It gives me time to edit. And then I, what I have found is assuming it's going to be more than a two week Kickstarter. I usually like to release during the doldrums. Right. So you, you guys will have your big, big funding at the beginning. And then you kind of, have that you in the middle mm. that's when i like to release so you can oh, realize how little impact being on my <laughs> podcast is <laughs> oh, guaranteed great. one backer that's me that's about all i can promise you <laughs> uh, all right uh, oh hey are you still here wow um well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to Patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.